0: Thank you for that. That's very beautiful. I want to, again, express my thanks and appreciation for the invitation to come back and be with you again. Uh, can everybody hear me? Can everybody hear me okay? Yes. That's that's a first, let me tell you. I <laughs> uh, will introduce my sons, uh, Jesse and John. Uh, John, you, go ahead and stand, John, so they can see you. This is John. He is... Uh, nine years of age, and Jesse will turn eight here in the next couple of weeks. So, thank you, guys. Uh, be turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and I will preface the passage uh, with this. Now, use the terms or the phrase this week, strong Christian strong Christian. And not, not an uncommon phrase that we use when we, talk, when we speak in our Christian lingo. What does that mean, though? Now, we probably have different ideas. Think in your mind at this moment what that means to you. What is a strong Christian? What would a strong Christian look like But what would a strong Christian do? You may automatically begin to think of Christian leaders from this century or the the past century or previous centuries. Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon, uh, some of the great pastors, the great preachers from the 20th century. Perhaps you think of a biblical character. Abraham, a man of faith, a man who picked up his family, left his, his his home, and went to a place where God was going to show him. He didn't even know where he was going, but by faith stepped out. His son Isaac. His son Jacob. These were men that had faith in God. Moses, great leader. David, in the New Testament, Peter and Paul—these are men that we we hear about. We've grown up. You've grown up in church. You know that you've, you've you've heard sermon after sermon after sermon, and lesson after lesson after lesson, and you've read and you've studied their lives. And maybe you think that's what a strong Christian, a strong follower, a strong believer in God looks like. But I must reminds you that these Old Testament characters, these Old Testament figures who were yeah, strong in their faith but were human nonetheless struggled nonetheless. Abraham, he had a problem with the truth, right? Lied and we think, well, yeah, he, he lied, but you have to understand, he lied to protect himself. And really, the heart of the matter wasn't the fact that he had a problem with the truth. He, didn't have, he had a problem trusting God. Because he knew God had promised an heir by Sarah, and he wanted to protect her, so he resorted to lying. He also liked to kind of take matters in his own hands, did he not? God promised him, you will have a son through Sarah he will be the heir he will be the one to whom uh, I will bless and Sarah and he kind of got their heads together and said you know what maybe we should just um, do things our way and we could still see the the consequences of that decision even in 2011 Moses strong leader a little impetuous though wasn't he Why did he murder the Egyptian? Because he thought he was doing the Israelites a favor. Ended up on the backside of the desert for 40 years. Smelling like sheep. Couldn't go into the promised land. What about David? He was a man after God's own heart. We all know about his problems, his mistakes. Peter, there's not enough time (laughs) to talk about impetuous Peter. Peter. So, we get an idea that these people were strong believers, strong followers in God. But yet, there was the human element involved as well. They struggled. Paul, probably the one man that you think of that was probably the epitome of a follower of Christ. But, Paul struggled with a weakness. Now, the Bible, no doubt, encourages us teaches us to be strong, to be strong in our faith, to, to trust God, to stand up against the tide that's facing us every day, the enemy that we, cook, that we do battle with every day. We are to be strong. But doesn't the fact that the, the, the command to be strong implies that that's something we don't have, we, we don't possess? And in a part of God. So is the term a strong Christian a misnomer? Does a strong Christian exist? What does he look like? What does, where does she possess her strength? Where does it come from? And I want to answer those questions by reading 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul writes, It is not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell or whether out of the body I cannot tell. God knoweth. Such an one caught up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God knoweth. How that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words which it was not awful for a man to utter. Now, Paul is recounting in the first few verses of an event that's taken place 14 years prior to the writing of this epistle. Now, whether it was Paul referring to himself in third person, or whether it was a third party, there's questions, or people differ on that interpretation. But he is referring to a revelation that was revealed to me of a man who saw who was caught up into the third heaven and witnessed, got a glimpse, paradise. And heard things that mortal man had never heard before. Things he said that which could not be uttered. Now, all fine and good. But wait, but wait a minute. What would one do with such knowledge? What would you do with such knowledge? What would I do with such knowledge? I'll be honest with you. If it was me, I'd find a publisher. <laughs> I'd call Oprah. I'd want everybody to know. But what would that do for me as a person? See, we live in a, a, a society that questions whether there is even an afterlife, questions the, the, the existence of good and evil, questions the existence of God. And can you imagine having such knowledge and coming forward and saying, listen, folks, this is what it's like. Would that be helpful? Or would that do more harm than good? Who knows? One thing's for sure, I'd be a popular person. Everybody would want to read my book. Everybody would want me to come and share with the the experience in which I had. And what would that do for me as a person, as a man? I could hang my head a little higher. I possess knowledge no one else has. Puff me up, wouldn't it? I would have a hard time not to feel really good about myself and not to boast. Because I possess something that no one else has. This knowledge, this experience that I'd want to share. Now my intentions may be all well and good, but I would struggle with pride. Paul recognizes the same thing because look, if you read on, Verse 5, of such an one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in mine infirmities. Now notice verse 6. For though I would desire to glory, mean boast, mean to to share this wonderful revelation with you. For for though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool. For I will say the truth, but now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be that he heareth me to be, lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelation It was given me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Now, what's that phrase, exalted above measure, mean? Notice he mentions it in the same verse two times. He repeats himself in the same verse. What does that mean? Lest I should be exalted above measure. Put it in modern day terminology. I don't want to get proud. I don't want to boast. I don't want to think of myself, think more of myself than I should. I've been given this opportunity, this revelation, whether whether I'm aware of a man that has witnessed it or it was myself. I've been given an opportunity to glimpse into the third heaven, to see paradise, to hear things that people would love to be able to know. But I am in danger, in danger of it puffing me up, of becoming proud about it. So what does he say? I was given. When you give somebody something, what's it called? A gift. But this gift... What does he call it? He says, It was a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet, torment me. You see, there's a correlation here. With this wonderful revelation that he was given, and this knowledge that he possessed, with it came a balance something that was a discomfort to him. Why? keep him, on the straight and narrow, keep him from rising above his own station in life. To help him to stay humble. Now, what was the thorn? Before I get there, kind of put it in perspective to you. When we think of a thorn, what comes to mind? Rosebush, right? Those big thorns. Okay. Um, Perhaps maybe what Paul could have been trying to express his something like a splinter. Now we've all had them, okay? I had one this summer uh, down inside of my fingernail. <laughs> Very painful. Now it wasn't debilitating. It wasn't something that I had to go to the doctor for. I wasn't bedridden. Okay, I could go about my normal duties. But let me tell you, I wanted that thing out of there. It was something that I perhaps wasn't aware of at all times throughout the day until what? I tried to use that finger or I bumped that finger. And then I was reminded, there's a splinter in there. I've got to get it out. And we've all felt that way. It was a, how shall I say it? Uh, It was a discomfort. It was an annoyance. It was a nuisance. I could go about my day, but I wanted it removed, and that I submit to you is what Paul was trying to say when he says he was given to me a thorn in the flesh. He could—he was still Paul. He was still an apostle. He still traveled. He still preached, but he lived with it day in and day out. Now, what was it? And all kinds of speculations to know what Paul's thorn was—whether it was a physical. Shortcoming. Some believed that he had vision, he had vision problems, and with all the beatings he received, it wouldn't be surprised, surprising that he that he he lost his vision later on in life. It could have been um, some can suggest that he was epileptic. Uh, it could have been a spiritual problem. It could have been an emotional problem. Whatever it was, Paul accepts the fact, and you have to understand, he accepts the fact that this was a gift, this was given to him, to keep him, to keep his feet on the ground spiritually. Paul's been given a great gift, this revelation, but balanced by this thorn, and he calls it a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to torment me, to keep me on my knees. me. What? Focused on God. He goes on to say, It was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan above me, lest I should be exalted. He, re- he repeats himself again, above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. Now this past summer I've I mentioned to my wife many times, i got More than just, you know, I had to have something, tweezers, a needle, something, dig that thing out. But I, I need to get it out. I need to get it out. I need to get it out. And, and, and this is what Paul's experience is that three times i besought the Lord. I I asked the Lord, take this from me. To put it in modern day terminology, get it out of my life. Bring me closure. Heal me. That might be something that we might would say today. Bring him or her back. Or take him or her away. <laughs> these, these annoyances that we deal with sometimes. And we say, we say, it's a thorn in my side. Or we may say, you're a thorn in my side. It's a, it's a, it's a nuisance. And we may say, God, why don't you do this. God, why did you allow this? I thought the scripture reading that you shared this morning was very apropos to this. Because they were talking about waiting and being patient and how God is with us through the hard time. And that the trial of our faith being much more precious than gold that's refined, might be found in praise and honor and glory in return to Jesus Christ. These are the issues that, that those verses very much these things that, that why does this always hang over my head? Why is this always resurfacing? You say, you know, things are going well for a while and then something happens and then I'm, I'm dealing with this all over again. We as believers today have been given a great gift. You realize that um, having multiple copies of scripture in my house, you can go online and have access to it. You have to understand, we live in a very unique time period in history to be able to even possess God's word. Countless individuals who grew up, who lived in centuries past, would have given their life and did just to possess God's word, to have a to have a copy of the Scripture. I don't know if I mentioned it the last time I was with you. Uh, the the story of uh, Tyndale and how he labored to translate the Bible into a into the common tongue, into the common language of man, uh, of, of the men and women of England. Because you said you see the, the Bible had been, had been in Latin for so many years. And the church taught Latin. And unless you were very wealthy or you had connections, you, could, you weren't afforded that, that education. And, and, and generations of individuals were dependent upon churchmen to, to teach them God's word. Because they couldn't read it for themselves. And the church very conveniently liked to have that power, liked to have that authority over them. Because you can imagine you can make people do things by telling them this is what God says. Take my word for it. And men like Wycliffe and and Tyndale, who took the, the courage and the fortitude to come forward and say, you know what? Let's put it put it in their tongues, put it in their language. People were starting, this was the renaissance. People were beginning to learn how to read. Education was becoming more prominent. And you can imagine the church said, we can't allow this to happen. We're going to lose our power. We're going to lose our foothold in society. And Tyndale had to go on the run. Couldn't couldn't stay in his house because the church was after him. And they hunted him down. And he went to caves and basements and cellars and barns and where anywhere people would accept him. All the while, having his translations, and he was working tirelessly. Well, the church caught up with him. It was around 1575. And to give you an idea of how much the church hated this man for what he did, when they executed him, they burned him at the stake, but it wasn't just enough to set fire to him. They put gunpowder in his beard. As the flames began to creep up, it would you get the idea. They put a noose around his neck so that as the pyre began to, to burn down, he would slowly, the weight of his body would slowly come down and he would hang, asphyxiate. Exfys- That's how much the, the, the church hated this man for for just desiring that everybody have a copy of the scriptures in that possession. And as he's dying, as the flames start to creep up before he reaches the point of death, make one more prayer. He says, God, open the eyes About 30 years later, this translation, King James' translation, was, was penned. And after that, from then on, the common man had in their possession Probably severest criticisms that we as a church, we as believers, face each day from the world is what? Well, they think they're better than us, they think that they know it all. They don't have any patience with me, they look down on me, and I'm not suggesting anybody here does that, but you've heard it, right? And whether it's true or not, it's it's understandable that we must be careful. That even though we possess the scripture and and we have the the ability and the the right to to go before God and pray, that we not become so puffed up with ourselves and so pious. Because, see, religion thrives on that. Christianity, folks, isn't about religion. It's not about whether I do my checklist, do all my, deeds, my duties for today. God, please—that's not what it's about. What is? It's not about religion. It's about a relationship with God. Christianity is not about doing; it's about being. And see, religion lies to us. It says, "If you do this, this, and this, God be." don't. Be careful. Religion likes to puff up. Religion likes to build us up and say, you're doing good. Out of the back. Oh, by the way, you need to do this, this, and this too. Oh, and by the way, you forgot to do this. Make sure you do this. And And religion sends us on a fool's errand to make sure we Meet the criteria and to make sure we measure up to being righteous and holy. But all the while, God, in His Word, all the while, what He desires is what? A relationship. To, to go to Him in prayer. To, to tell Him what's bothering you. To confess our sins daily. <clears throat> so we have to the 21st century church yes we we have to be careful about being puffed up about about thinking more of ourselves than we ought to think and maybe that's why God sometimes if I may be bold to suggest this maybe that's why sometimes God gives us things in our lives that keeps us on our knees that keeps us going to him say, God what about this what about this now that's what Paul did good strong Christian Paul right the apostle the first missionary and what does he say in verse 9 he says he says he or verse 8 he says this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me in verse 9 and he said unto me now who's he who is he? God. Now in my copy of the scriptures, that, those words, the following words are in red. Okay? It's Christ. Christ's words. What does he say? My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. What's a strong Christian look like? A person with a weakness. A person with a foreign person that's, that's, that's plagued by questions and doubt. You see, the world doesn't understand that. Strengths of the world is what? Power, might, money, control. A strong Christian is a weak Christian. A strong Christian is a Christian that they may look fine on the outside but when they go home so that doesn't make sense. No, because it's in our weakness that his strength is made perfect. And that word. He says, for my strength is made perfect. It's the Greek word for complete. you, but this verse reminds me of the fact that there are no strong Christians. are just weak Christians who know where to go to find help. There are weak Christians who are relying on the grace that's sufficient to get them through the day. Hey, we all face it. Day in and day out, every one of us are going to get up tomorrow morning. It's a holiday. Okay, no work maybe, no school oh, maybe. Okay, <clears throat> great. But we're going to go through out this week. And think about it in your own life. What it is you're facing. What is it that just won't let go? What is it that you've prayed about? You've, you've asked God just bring me closure in this. Take care of this. Heal me. Bring them back. Give me peace. Give me comfort. What is it? And you think, why... Go out there and be strong. And and go out there and, 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 and fulfill your checklist. And all the while, God wants us to rely on Him. To wait on Him. And to allow His grace to work its sufficiency in our life. Notice what Paul says in verse 9. Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasures in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distress for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What's a strong Christian look like? grace that's sufficient for them. Where does that grace come from? Where does that strength come from? It comes from Christ. We have access to it every single day. So, my challenge to you is forget religion. Forget just going through the motions and jumping through the hoops. Forget waking up every morning and saying, I've got to be strong, I've got to be strong, I've got to be strong. And instead, go before Him. Say, God, here's the situation. Here's this relationship. Here's this bill. Here's this doctor calling me. And I don't know what no end inside. And like that little splinter in my hand, you know, I can, go on, I can go in day in and day out. I can still go into work. I can still take care of my family. I can still go to school. I can still do this. I can still do that. But it's a constant reminder that I don't have it all together. It's okay. It's okay. When we strength is made perfect in us. Forget doing the Christian life on your own. Start living in the glory and the bask in his grace that's, that's sufficient for us. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the promises that dwell therein. Lord, we pray that you would speak to each of us this morning. May we uh, look to you. God, we don't have it all together. And we like to wear masks, and we like to nod, and we like to pretend everything's okay, but we know the truth. But God, comfort us, I pray. That whatever it is we're dealing with, whatever it is we're going through, may you, O oh Lord, remind us that when we're, when we're in our weaknesses, in, our, in, in the areas of life where, where we can't control, we can't seem to shake. We can't get rid of them. That your strength is made perfect in us. Go with these dear people this week, Lord. I pray that you would bring to memory, Lord, the things that you would have them to remember. Lead guide and direct them. Uh, I pray. And as the service uh, continues, pray that you would be honored and glorified in all things. In Jesus' name.